2: Thank you, Carl and Sarah. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I am Courtney Reagan. And today for Scott Waffner, front and center this hour, the state of stocks and what's next for your money as we kick off a critical week of earnings. The Investment Committee, of course, is standing by, as always, to break it all down. Joining us today, Bryn Talkington, Joe Terranova, and Steve Weiss. Let's get a quick check on the markets and where we are today on this very busy week for earnings. Dow Jones Industrials down just a hair 53 points, S&P 500 down about 13. NASDAQ composite off about eight-tenths of a percent or so, and the yield on the 10-year note is sitting just above three and a half percent. Stocks clearly treading water as we gear up, as forementioned, for this busy week of earnings. One third of the S&P 500 is reporting results. That includes four tech titans, Alphabet, Microsoft, Meta, and Amazon. So what's at stake as we kick off this monster week? Joe, I will turn to you first since you are sitting right next to me. I mean, there is so much at stake right now. We're just treading water, trying to make sense of where we're going. What's top of your radar?
3: Well, I mean, the market is basically sitting above 4,100. It's been doing that since the early part of April. And you're right. This is a huge week because now you have the potential catalyst that comes in the form of earnings in particular for the mega caps. So Microsoft Alphabet. They'll be reporting, obviously, tomorrow. That's the catalyst. That's what moves the market technically towards 4,200 and test the upper end of the range. And I think that's what this is all about. You've been in a range between 3,800 and 4,200 since November. We're seeing if we can kind of break out of that range or not. And this is the moment. These are the stocks that if you are going to break out of 4,200, they're the ones that are going to do it. Meta on Wednesday, Amazon on Thursday. If we do not have those stocks act as the catalyst to get us above 4200 we fall right back into that very troubling range between 3800 and 4200
2: and we're going to dig in more to those technicals too in a little bit Uh, steve you know a lot of these names of course yes they're all mega cap tech but they have their own stories they've got a lot going on percolating under the surface is there anything in particular we need to watch for one by one or is there a theme that we need to make sure to follow through for each of these names as they report uh
4: you know, I, I don't expect them to miss necessarily because they missed last quarter. So how often do they miss two quarters in a row? But if you look underneath, what, what we'll be looking for is what's happening with the cloud. Have you seen the the growth, which has slowed down, either flatten or move higher? I don't suspect you will because of the economy. So it's been economically related, the slowdown we've seen it. So that's not gonna work. Then you look at the ad spend. So the ad spend, at least for Amazon in part, but Meta and Alphabet, uh, that's important. They're important drivers. Uh, I don't expect to see a pickup there either. So what they're gonna talk about is the efficiency from headcount reductions, except for Alphabet, which really hasn't had a lot, and actually neither has Microsoft. So are they truly more efficient, or are their ratios, financial ratios, gonna be subpar? Look, I think they can do okay, but What it's going to do, it's going to tell you the economy's not doing so great. Mm. That's my bet. So there's always an appetite for these stocks. I think what you're seeing today and what you've seen recently with NASDAQ selling off somewhat is that not a lot, somewhat. Uh, is that people made a lot of money buying these, safety going in there. Now they're wondering, should I take money off the table or not? So I think it's gonna be a very interesting week. It's not really gonna change my narrative though, in terms of saying the economy is going into recession.
2: Hmm. Bren, you're invested here in some of these names, some of these big mega cap names. As Weiss pointed out, of course, the NASDAQ is down about eight tenths of a percent. Is that sort of a vote as to what may be happening when these names report? What is going to be important for you to stay invested in some of these mega cap stocks?
5: Well, I mean, I own, from an individual security perspective, Microsoft, Apple, and, and Nvidia, which, which is not on the on the call this week. But here's, here's what's interesting though, I think to, to kind of dig in deeper to what Steve was talking about, you know, within the cloud, which really is Amazon and Microsoft. The, the Google cloud is only 9% of revenues They lose money on it, and it's actually 25% of their workforce. But I think the Amazon, the enterprise from the cloud on both companies would be really important about the economy at the enterprise, at the company level. But to me, what's going to be interesting, I think the wild card, if I had to look at the four companies reporting, I would say Amazon, to me, is the biggest wild card. It's been down eight out of the last 10 quarters. And it has missed earnings and revenue forecast seven out of the last eight times and actually reduced with the last five. So Amazon going into its quarter, the last 10 quarters has not been a good stock to, let's say you want to speculate and buy it today, thinking it's going to bounce. That to me is still the biggest wild card because I do think Andy Jassy has been really clear. They had so much CapEx spending during COVID, they're still digesting that and they're still spending. But I think overall the referendum, if you look at the first quarter in April, Amazon's up 27, Apple's up 27, Microsoft and Google are up 20, and you know Facebook or um, Meta even more so. So I think the referendum is the first five weeks or the first quarter in, in April has been so positive. But I think the majority of the returns for these stocks have been earned in this first quarter. And I don't think we're gonna see big surprises, especially, Courtney, since the dollar has weakened, all of these companies, Microsoft and Apple in particular, talked last quarter about the FX headwind. That will be a tailwind, I think, for sure, on the first quarter. Hmm. Those are really
2: good points. And it's interesting, too, to talk about where they've gone or where how far they've come, really, if you look at the technology stocks compared, Joe, to the S&P 500, really outperforming. I think the most since I read a stats, what, since 2009, when it comes to the outperformance since the beginning of the
3: year. And there was a significant um, under the positioning was well below what the uh, market targets were for a lot of portfolio managers. So if you think about where we came into this year, technology was held at an underweight. Mm. You didn't have that type of positioning really since the great financial crisis. So you've got this environment where portfolio managers are beginning to rebuild positions. I think certainly the events uh, since Silicon Valley Bank in March, where you see this disinflationary effect and you see two-year treasury yields being pulled back by 125 basis points at their trough, now about 75 basis points. That lends itself to the return of giving consideration to growth as a story once again and as a a strategy. So I think Bryn's right. I think collectively and even to Stephen's point, I think there is an idiosyncratic story that each one of these stocks can be telling us this week. You're going to hear a lot about AI from Alphabet and from Microsoft. We're going to hear about cost efficiency. And I think Instagram is going to be a very very strong driver of revenue for meta and then ultimately Amazon. how can they recreate uh, the macroeconomic challenges? How can they take that and utilize that in terms of negotiating lower costs and turning that into the ability for that stock to see the rebound? because if you study Amazon relative to some of the other mega caps, there's a slight underperformance there.
2: Yeah, there's so many things going on under the surface of course amazon has all of these different businesses if you look at facebook or meta you all the talk of the spending on the metaverse which is just you know something that many other companies are walking away from right now disney um, being one of them but you brought up a good point too when you were talking about silicon valley and if if i can prevent us from taking too far of a hard turn i was reading about the insider buying weiss in some of these regional bank stocks and we have first republic reporting after the bell what do you see when you're looking at some of these bank stocks? When you're looking at the financials,
4: I see commercial real estate exposure, okay. and I see that situation getting worse. So uh, I don't think there's any need to really go to the regional banks. Mm. Uh, look at B of A; that's been under pressure. I think it's relatively inexpensive stock. So why not go there? Why not go to Goldman Sachs? Mm. Uh, so they don't have the same balance sheet issues at the regional banks. We saw Moody's downgraded a slew of them on Friday. At the end of the day, I think they'll be okay. But if you're banking on the dividends there, like Key has a monstrous dividend or others, I think you're making the wrong bet. I'd rather just get 5% in treasuries right now, or 4.5%, uh, maybe a little less in two years. So why not go there, tax advantage? Um, you don't need to gamble. You don't need to be invested in regional banks. They'll do fine. I don't think we're going to see a mass, you know, liquidation of regional banks. Uh, who knows what happens to the First Republic? But um, but that's not where I put money. It's not where you're going to generate return, in my view.
3: I think what the way you have to look at it is, to be thankful, it's over.
2: <laughs> is it we're,
3: over? Well, we're, we're, we're past the regional bank earnings at this point. We're past the bank earnings, and that was the concern, wasn't it? The concern was, is that it was going to drag us down significantly, in fact, that didn't happen. Mm. What did it tell us? It told us that deposit inflows went to the large money center banks. JP Morgan obviously expect. benefited from that. And even some super regionals. You can yep. look at USB and PNC, seeing them as I beneficiaries. i surprised USB
4: downgrade, actually.
3: I think USB is a super regional that's gonna benefit from the climate. I just think overall, we have too many regional banks in this country. We need the consolidation. Whether the consolidation happens naturally or through balance sheet mm. stress, That'll be determined over the coming months. I don't think that by any way is this over. I think the stress is still going to be present. But just from the perspective of earnings, be thankful. We're, yeah, we're I, past I, them.
4: Yeah, I, I think you're right. consolidation. And Jamie Dimon was saying the same thing. However, there's one issue with that, and that's Lena Kahn from the FTC. Mm. And if you take a look at the papers that have been put out by the government, by the Fed, and they talk about how you've seen community banks shrink to intolerably low levels, now you can now you potentially see it with regional banks. I only think regional banks consolidate if they're in trouble, and that's not going to be good for owning the shares. So don't try and pick the winners, I'm not saying you will, just in general, the ones that are going to be bought. And by the way, when banks generally merge, they're mergers of equals, so you're not necessarily getting a premium to the share price. Mm.
3: All right, I'll take a look at some of those papers, but I'm not going to put them on my summer reading. <laughs> Fair
5: enough. Brent, I want to get you involved here. Yeah, well, so I think, I think the regional banks, first of all, the majority of their returns are on net interest income. And so I think that's the, if you were going to dive in there and say, well, are they going to raise deposit rates? It doesn't seem like that's happening, by the way. They're definitely doing CDs. But here's what I think is interesting, is that if you look at February and look at the Russell 1500 or S&P 1500, and look at the short exposure in February. And then as the end of last month, first Republican PAC West went from like two and 3% short interest to almost 30 and 27%. So there are a ton of hedge funds and, and those types of traders that are just sitting on these names, especially a first Republican, a PAC West. So if a first republic comes back and they can like limp along or a pack west, I think there's a tremendous opportunity for a short squeeze in a lot of these names. And so it's nothing about the long term, we'll say fundamentals, because I do think that net interest margin ultimately is where so much return is driven. But I also think people are broad brush stroking this commercial real estate because per- commercial real estate is an incredibly heterogeneous asset class. What we really should be talking about is office office real estate. And I think if you look at all of these companies that have already reported in their earnings deck, they are going through excruciating detail, walking through what office exposure they do and don't have. So I think there's a ton of pessimism there. And there could easily be some short squeezes as events just don't occur and things get less worse.
2: Fred, can, can I ask you, when, because you, you brought up PacWest here just for a moment, in the Wall Street Journal, they were talking about um, a research firm that sort of tracks insider buying, and not the insider buying that's pre-planned, but the insider buying that's not, and some of the executives in PacWest were buying up shares. Does that not speak to confidence to you? If, if you're a trader and you're trying to follow yep. along and read the tea leaves, what does that mean to you for PacWest, since that's a name you brought up?
5: Right, well, I mean, I think with the heavy short interest, I mean, if you look at the 1,500 names, First, Republic and West are the two biggest increases in short exposure, and these are small market caps. So that literally acts like an elephant sitting on someone's chest in terms of the stock's inability to move higher until the data changes. And so I think anecdotally, that's a very positive sign that you see, you know, insider buying from these banks. That everyone already feels like the narrative has been told. But I, don't, I think it's, I think it's an interesting space. I think it's hard to analyze these companies. But I do think just like broad brushing stroke and say commercial real estate and a story is not accurate to actually how, what's going to happen, because also on, on office, the banks are going to be the last to lose money, by the way. It's the developers and the owners of the building that are getting wiped out. Yeah, the banks may need to take it back and put it with a special servicer, but it's a much more complicated story, and that's where I think there's potential opportunity for some of these names.
4: Well, I, I would just say one thing. Number one, be careful about the short interest, because some of that's a hedge, mm. because you have hedge funds that are buying the bonds okay. and participating in liquidation. So. So it's either a hedge or it's a point of view because they know what the credit is. They're doing tremendous credit work. And commercial real estate is a ubiquitous term. But I would say that I don't know that it matters at this point because that's what's going to drive the stocks, the perception. So for those that want to Mm -hmm. do the deep, deep work, great. Have at it. But stocks trade as groups, and it takes a long time to come out of that morass in terms of what the fundamentals are. Plus, let's not forget, they've got even the big banks, If you drive by a city, they're offering a 4% CD. Mm. When have they done that? The answer is they haven't done it in 15 years in terms of offering market-rate CDs. Of course, the other banks, the smaller banks, have to do the same thing to be competitive. So their cost of capital now has gone up tremendously. So those are cautions.
2: And we should point out that First Republic shares are higher by about 8% going into those earnings, but of course have been all over the map here in the last several months. Joe, before we move on here, I understand where we're looking past earnings, the Fed is something that is squarely in your focus. and I don't think we've brought up the word Fed yet so far in the first 15 minutes of the show. Well,
3: when you get past earnings, that's what next week is going to be all about. It's going to be, first of all, ISM manufacturing is going to be very critical. Manufacturing is in a recession. I believe right now the economy is in far worse condition than is being communicated. Is the Federal Reserve next week, are they going to hike 25 basis points? And along with that, signal a pause. I think that is what's gonna be most important to understand in particular for the press conference. And I think something that they're gonna have to do because the economy is messaging to the Federal Reserve that there are an abundance of recessionary indicators that are intensifying. The Philly Fed last week was such an example. Mm -hmm. The economic contraction is here, it's present, it's now. I believe that the market did a a very good job discounting the economic weakness that we're seeing today in the fall. I think everything that we saw in the fall and the price deterioration was about the economic weakness that you're seeing today, was about the expectation that the efforts of the Federal Reserve ultimately, the way that you combat inflation, the price you pay, is through an economic contraction. That's been the story all along. That's the reality of where we are right now. Hopefully the Federal Reserve softens next week their communication about their efforts. If they, in fact, they don't, then I think the bigger challenge is gonna be the net effect on consumers and corporations.
2: Well, thank you, Mr. Sunshine. On that cheerful note, I'm gonna send it over to Brent Dockington here just for a quick final thought before we move on.
5: Yeah. Well, I mean, also don't forget um, on the 27th, we have GDP and Atlanta Fed said it's going to come in at two and a half. So there's another conflicting data point. And finally, I think on the banks, you know, Robert Kaplan, who was former Dallas Fed chairman or Fed president, he gave a speech and actually saying that he thinks the Fed should not raise rates because he thinks that we're only in the second or third inning, not the seventh inning of this regional bank exposure. And that continuing to raise rates can cause unintended consequences that we just don't understand. So I think he has very, a tremendous amount of credibility saying that the Fed should not raise and just pause and let things settle in.
2: Ah, so he thinks differently from uh, from our traders here and that perhaps we're not done with this regional banking crisis. For a technical look at the week and the month ahead, we're going to look a little further out. Let's bring in Jonathan Kriske. He's chief market technician at BTIG. Jonathan, thanks so much uh, for being here. We talked a little earlier in the show here about the narrow trading range that we've been sitting in, particularly in the S&P 500. You think we're not going to stay narrow for long, but you don't think we're going higher. What's your thesis here?
6: Yeah. So if you look at the Intra-month trading range at this point, and the month's not over yet. It's about 2.4%. That would be the smallest monthly trading range since 2019. Uh, we can look at other measures of volatility, like Bollinger Bands on the Nasdaq 100. Would be the it's the narrowest since late 2021. So again, these narrow trading ranges don't tell us necessarily about the next direction, only that a, a expansion of, of volatility is likely, uh, an expansion out of this range. And you know, we think it is to the downside for a couple of reasons. Um, first is just looking at momentum, you know, externally on the index level, it's starting to roll over. Um, you know, the last four times we saw this, we did see meaningful downside in the weeks ahead. Um, the second point is seasonality. Uh, you know, a lot of people kind of roll their eyes at the sell and may go away, and I think it's important to look at seasonality within. You know, what is the context of it? And you know, the example we would use is if if we had. You know, coming into May, if we were down significantly, if we were oversold, okay, maybe you don't want to go and sell into that weakness. But you know, with the fact that we're up seven or eight percent on the year, and we're starting to see these momentum and and uh, breadth divergences creep in, that tells us that seasonality is likely to be choppy and could be a headwind. And then the third point is, you just look under the surface, and there is deterioration under the surface. Um, You know, depending on how you want to look at it, whether you're looking at uh, equal weight versus cap weight, small cap versus large, one of the one of the Uh, best ratios we like to look at is high beta stocks relative to low volatility stocks. And there's been a high correlation in that ratio to the overall market, but that ratio peaked back in early February and is down significantly since then. Um, So very strong negative divergence there. We're seeing a rotation, again, into the defensives, the staples, utilities, and we're seeing um, some weakness out of higher beta stocks, particularly in the last few weeks out of semiconductors.
2: So even though, of course, what we've seen in the past doesn't always portend in the future, you do think that seasonality suggests the sell in May, go in way adage might actually be worthwhile this time?
6: Yeah, and I I mean, look, it doesn't have to be a significant downside move, but I think typically May and June can be very choppy. Um, and I think, given those you know those headwinds we we highlighted, I think um, you know a, a period of weakness should creep in. We can also look at you know s- sentiment and exposure. I mean, uh, the systematic community, if you're talking about CTAs, largely to believe to be pretty uh, max long at this point after having been quite net short um, you know a few months ago. And even on the retail level, if you look at something like the National Association of Active Investment Managers, they now have a higher net exposure than they did at the August peak. So I. I think there's you know there's certainly a lot of bearish rhetoric out there but we continue to think that what people are doing is much different than what they've been saying
2: Fair enough doing and doing something saying something can not always Be the same thing. We know of consumers very well. Jonathan Krinsky, thank you very much for joining us. We're going to have to leave it there. We're going to head over to Steve Kovac. He's got a quick market flash for us. Steve, what's up?
7: Hey, Court. Yeah, take a look at shares of carrier falling about 5% right now after a Wall Street Journal report says they plan to buy the German manufacturer Weissmann, or Wiesmann, sorry, uh, for about $10 billion in stock and cash. Now, this is to help bolster their air conditioning business. They also completed a deal with Toshiba for $900 million just a few days ago. Courtney, oh, it's down more. Than five and a half percent now on this on news of this deal. We've reached out to the company. i have more if we get they get back to us court.
2: Steve Kavuk, thank you very much thank for you. joining us. Well stay with us. Up next, our call of the day one Dow stock name a top pick. We'll see if the committee agrees here. Plus our chart of the day on one of the best performing sectors this month. Halftime report is back in two minutes. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. It is time for a call of the day. Disney named a top pick at Wells Fargo, the firm calling it the best opportunity in media. Joe, you previously owned this name, don't currently. What do you make of this call and the stock in general?
3: I think it's a general consensus that Disney will be able to turn it around. I think people believe Bob Iger knows exactly how to do that. Uh, again, it goes back to cost efficiency. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it involves people losing their jobs, which we never want to see. But I think collectively, when you think about owning this stock, realize now we're four years into Disney streaming. That was going to be the source of growth for this company. The stock is actually below when that was actually introduced to the market. So It has not, in fact, been this, this source of growth. In fact, it's been a source of strain in terms of the exorbitant cost for that platform itself. So. If you have patience, if you have time on your side, if you have the ability to wait, Disney is a stock that over the long term I think will be okay. Will it reward you in the near term? I'm not necessarily sure.
2: Hmm. Steve, that's a really good point he makes about Disney Plus not being additive at all to the valuation that we're seeing right now. Is, is that something we should be watching as investors? Should it be?
4: You know, look, this is a case where you're betting on the jockey, right? Bye-bye. Bob Iger's come back. He's going to be there another year and a half. Uh, that's not a lot of time, wouldn't be uh, out of the question to extend it, but he's got some real heavy lifting to do. There are too many streaming services out there, and we see with animation that actually it's the parent company mm-hmm. of CNBC that's having the best year. So. Too much cost there, as the as the report says, they're spending $30 billion on content, and it's a very bad return on capital, so they've got to rationalize it. I'm not sure the job cuts alone will do it, no. so it's a question of how do you do it? Hulu, of course, is an unknown. Do they own it all, or do they not? Who does own it? So um, Comcast or them. So there are lots of unknowns here, but I think at this point, you know, the stock is found a nice base this level uh, that you got to bet on Bob Iger. So the risk reward to me is attractive. I don't own it because of my market view. It doesn't mean I won't in the next six months.
3: You're also going to need a better macro environment. Sure. And that's but been parks. a challenge.
4: Yeah. Well, that's where they'll get hit because you're going to see the Fed actions really going to start hitting the economy when they get to the summer and that's their prime season. So I bet that the parks are going to be lower this year than they were last year.
2: It just astonishes me how much they can charge for those parks and still see the crowds there. It is pretty amazing. We have to move on now to our chart of the day. It's energy, best performing sector this month. Two big energy names said to report this Friday, ExxonMobil and Chevron. Joe, we're going to kick it back to you again because you own both. What are you expecting?
3: Well, I'll talk a little bit about energy and then we'll go to the expert branch. she knows <laughs> yeah. way more than I do. But mm-hmm. um, listen. The oil, uh, spot price of oil has fallen back from the announcement, the surprise announcement, somewhat of a surprise uh, with OPEC cutting back on supplies. And there has been a significant loss of price momentum when you're studying energy equities. You can't dismiss that. You know, you you could make a very strong fundamental argument for energy. In fact, I believe if you study all the 11 major sectors, energy is where you could make the clearest most compelling fundamental argument why you should see continued appreciation in 2023 through 24 and 25 and into 26. that being said there has been the loss of momentum you have to acknowledge it so how do you play it i think the way you play it is looking for the diversification story and you look at companies like an exxon Mobil, which as you said will report friday and realize this company they have not lost their momentum. They, in fact, are trading at the upper end of their range, they're recording record profitability, and they're gonna utilize that record profitability to go out and expand upon their growth. We've already heard about interest surrounding Pioneer Natural Resources. I would suspect there would be other companies, in fact, that will follow a similar strategy in which you're utilizing all these strong revenues to go out and buy some more growth. So stay high up in quality with a name like ExxonMobil. That's the way I play it. How do you account
4: for the difference in the performance of Chevron and Exxon?
3: Um, I think the refinery business. And seeing that refiners more recently have uh, come under somewhat of a little bit of a stress with the higher oil price itself. But I I don't think there's that much of a distinction between Chevron um, or ConocoPhillips or even ExxonMobil. I think collectively three of those uh, energy giants in the long run, investors will be well served to be owners.
2: Bren, we got to bring you into this conversation. I know you're an expert in this area and you are down in Houston. So what do you make of what's going on, what you what you will expect yeah. out of Friday? And then I know you own some other names, Devon Energy, Diamondback, Viper Energy,
5: etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so if <laughs> you so talk about the sell and the, 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 the May and go away at the broad market, actually, from a seasonality standpoint, this next quarter is the strongest sector for energy. Mm-hmm. So just from a historical seasonality perspective. So I could see that while tech is taking a breather and consumer discretionary is taking a breather, energy and some other cyclicals actually start to pick up momentum, especially if GDP comes in strong and this, this soft landing narrative recession maybe in 2024 gains steam. I also think, which you know, Joe hadn't touched on yet, we have this Saudi put and Saudi really front running their sense that growth globally may slow and cutting that production is very significant. I think going forward that OPEC, unfortunately, by the way, will be more and more relevant to the price of oil just because of where we are geopolitically. So I think that this will be a great year to accumulate names. I like RYE better than XLE because XLE is 50 plus percent Chevron and Exxon versus RYE has about a 4% weighting and around 25 names. And so you get that really good chunky diversification without the over-diversification. So without a doubt, I mean, as, as as Joe started, this sector of any sector is like lowest PE, highest free cash flow yield, capital discipline. If we don't go into a recession, which we're not going into recession anytime soon, unless some event happens, I think this this tug of war of energy will stay this year, but you can collect a dividend and sell calls, which is continues to be the way I'm playing it for 2023.
2: I was just going to say, you can't talk about oil without talking about what's going on in the broader economy. Of course, such a big lever there always. Bryn Talkington, thank you very much. We're going to go over and get some headlines from Seema Modi. Hi, Seema. Here's a CNBC News update at this hour. Jury selection in the federal trial of Robert G. Bowers, a truck driver accused of killing 11 people at a Pittsburgh synagogue, began today. Bowers faces... 63 counts stemming from the 2018 shooting at the Tree of Life Synagogue, the
5: deadliest anti-Semitic attack in U.S. history. Bowers could get the death sentence if convicted. The Supreme Court allowed lawsuits seeking to hold energy companies
2: accountable for climate change to move forward today. The court turned away oil company appeals in five cases involving claims brought by multiple cities and municipalities. The move means the lawsuits can move forward in state court where it is widely believed plaintiffs have a
5: better Better chance of winning damaged awards. And Don Lemon is out at CNN after 17 years. Lemon had been moved from a primetime slot to CNN's This Morning show about six months ago, where his tenure was short and controversial.
2: Courtney, back to you. Very interesting, Seema, of course, after the Tucker Carlson news that Julia brought us earlier this morning. Thank you very much. Well, up next, we are going global. The latest trends in ETF investing and the data that shows that Europe is hot. Bob Pisani has the details on how to play it. That's coming up on
4: Halftime. Grade my trade. Send us your latest stock move, and the investment committee will debate it and grade it. Email us at askhalftime at CNBC.com, or tweet us, hashtag grademytrade.
2: What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number, and more about discovering the magic in life. At edwardjones.com.
1: We're back on halftime. I'm Bob Pisani with today's ETF Edge. Europe is the place to invest so far in 2023. U.S. stocks are off to a good start. The S&P is up 7% this year, but Europe is far outperforming. What's going on? Let's talk with Matt Bartolini. He's the head of Spider America's Research for State Street. That's part of the team that oversees one of the largest European ETFs, the Spider Eurostox 50. Matt, all the major European ETFs, as I mentioned, up 15 to 20 percent for the year at new highs last week, including your own Eurostox 50 ETF. That's up 20 percent this year. Why is Europe doing so much better than the United States this year?
8: Well, I think there are three factors that are driving some of this strength in the all baked in sort of historical quantitative aspects. Valuations are more constructive for European equities relative to the rest of the world, but also within the US. I mean, Europe trades at a 14 PE versus 18.8 for the S&P 500, and that discount is larger than normal. Also from an earnings perspective, earnings sentiment has been far stronger overseas in European markets than in the U.S. We've actually seen upgrades to earnings estimates as opposed to downgrades for 2023 earnings estimates in the U.S. And then lastly, price momentum. It has been stronger. So quantitatively, value, sentiment and momentum, those factors are all pointing in the right direction for Europe.
1: This is a a surprise to a lot of people, Matt. Six to eight months ago, we were talking and the consensus then was the war in Ukraine would have a very negative effect uh, on European earnings and valuations. How has that Perception change? Why this turnaround?
8: Well, I think you know it's been a been a year since it has started. Some of those initial shocks have dissipated from an economics perspective. The warmer weather overseas in Europe have really sort of mitigated some of the impacts of the energy crisis. So you're starting to see a little bit of an upswing as a result of that, and some of that sort of negative sentiment wearing off, and now going into some positive sentiment in the region from an economic and fundamental perspective. What's remarkable
1: is to look at these luxury stocks, the LVMHs, the Rolls-Royces of the world. They have far outperformed, but even... Consumer stocks. It's not just luxury. Bear, Adidas, they're up 20 percent or more. Uh, This is a very broad rally in Europe. We like to say, well, luxury is really doing well because the reopening in China is helping these stocks. And France has got a lot of these companies headquarters there. But even Ireland was at a new high last week. Uh, France, Germany, Italy, all at new highs uh, last week. So it's a pretty broad rally.
8: Yeah, it's been broad-based, and when we look at it from a pure momentum perspective, we look across all the different factors that we rank countries by. Germany and France they rank very highly. In Germany, out of the uh, six out of the eight factors we screen by, Germany is at the top. So it is a, a pretty broad-based rally. It's not just a handful of, of names. Different countries are supporting this, and I think quantitatively, you look at it, there are there are some fundamental backstops to it.
1: Yeah. Okay. We're going to have a lot more on this. This is a really interesting topic on how to invest in European equities and European ETFs. That's coming up on ETF Edge, 1.10 p.m. Eastern time. We're going to be talking about the China reopening and its impact on Europe, why Europe is so much cheaper to invest, why it's a value play right now, and what role the weaker dollar is playing. That's a real uh, tailwind there as well. Matt will be joined by Vance Barsi. He's the founder of your dedicated fiduciary. That's ETF Edge cnbc.com. Courtney, back to you. Thanks, Bob.
2: Well, coming up, the state of the semis and the headline that's weighing on shares of Micron today. We're going to break it down. That's coming up next on Halftime. And following a developing story on Micron, shares lower on escalating tensions out of Asia. Our Christina Parsonellis is at the Nasdaq with the latest. Hi, Christina.
9: A friend. That's what the U.S. is asking from South Korea: should China completely ban U.S. memory chipmaker Micron from selling their chips? China and Hong Kong contributed almost 20% of Micron's total revenue last year, and that number, which is you know about 16%, is estimated to be even higher. That's why losing China would be a huge blow to Micron's bottom line. So the U.S. is asking South Korea chipmakers like Samsung and SK Hynix not to step in and fill the gap should China ban Micron. The request. Comes as South Korea's president visited, visits the United States this week. We still don't know how China's national security review of Micron will pan out and if there's going to be a complete ban, but Micron could be used as a pawn to retaliate against the U.S.'s recent policies that have weakened China's semiconductor efforts. So would South Korea play ball? That's a big question. It would financially hurt SK Hynix and Samsung if they didn't sell to China since China is such a big buyer of memory chips. and Why would they want to help a competitor like Micron? One reason could be that the U.S. gave South Korean company waivers to keep exporting chips from China given they have manufacturing hubs in the country, while the U.S. has stopped most other American firms from doing so. Those U.S. waivers must be renewed later this year and could be used as a carrot, if I may say, in the tech war between China and the U.S., Courtney.
2: It's all fascinating stuff. Christina Partzinevelis, thank you for following so closely for us. I mean, there's a lot of geopolitical risk here across the board when it comes to chips with all of... The rhetoric that's going on out of Asia. Joe, how do you how do you play this space? Or is it something well, you want to stay hands-off for a little while, even though we've seen such a nice run here?
3: No, I don't think you could avoid the semiconductor industry. It's such an incredible, uh, incredibly important part of the economy. It really is what the transports are. It's the nucleus of, of everything that we're utilizing, whether it's a washing machine or uh, a, an iPad. Um, so you have to kind of be in the semiconductor space. There's been a pullback recently. The SMH is down 6%. Other semis like AMD down double digits so far, month to date. So I think this week is critical. We've already said the earnings of mega caps are critical, but the earnings for semis are very critical this week. Texas Instruments is going to tell you tomorrow what demand really looks like. Is there resiliency in demand? And Texas Instruments usually sees it before the other semiconductor companies, in particularly for automotive. Automotive has been remarkably resilient. I've talked on air about owning on semi, which has the exposure to automotive. Is the resiliency still there? We know what's going on with data centers. Um, analog devices told us that we're seeing a little bit of recovery in demand coming from China. It's a very convoluted story. I think you have to be there in semiconductors. I don't think you dismiss the entire industry, but this week, you're really gonna learn starting with Texas Instruments, following through with Intel, what's the man truly looking like.
2: Bren, you own Nvidia here. You wanna keep in this space. I know obviously we've been down about 2.3% for the week for the broader semiconductor ETF, although year to date up about 19% for the group. Is it best to own individual names like an Nvidia?
5: I think so. I think this is such a unique asset class I was just looking, so over the last five years, Nvidia's up 375%, Micron's up 25%, and Intel's down 43%. So, and that's just a not that past performance predicts the future, but it's like Intel's down 43 versus a plus 375. These companies are so unique and different. Texas Instruments has done very well. I think you have to pick your spots in this space. I love what Joe said about you know on semiconductors because that is the one spot where Taiwan semiconductor actually saw positive growth of only 5%, but still positive growth. And so I think this is one area where you don't want to own an ETF and you actually want to be very specific and surgical because these companies do so many different things. We just lump them together and call them semiconductors, Mm -hmm. but there's real winners and losers um, in this space without a doubt.
2: Yeah, that makes sense, and it's a good thing everyone here helps everybody do their homework because there is a lot of difference and nuances in each of these names. Well, up next, Mike Santoli joins us with his midday word. Halftime is back right after this. Rod Ernest, he's trading a little bit of water here. Welcome back to Halftime. Senior markets commentator Mike Santoli does join us with his midday word. What's on your mind?
7: Well, it's so much a so, uh, similar story to last week, Courtney. We just showed there the Dow Jones Industrial Average out to the third decimal place because <laughs> yeah. that's how flat it is. And I think that's been the story. But while it's quiet, I don't think it's particularly comfortable for anybody on either side of this market, because if you're bullish, you'd say, well, you know what? It's only a small minority of stocks working. The cyclical stuff that's attached to the economy that I thought was going to be be ripping uh, coming into this year have really backed off. Um, we think the Fed's going to pause, but is that priced in? Bearish investors, though, you have to be impressed with the fact that the indexes have been resilient. So I think I come down on the is the market underreacting to big known threats? Or is it simply reflecting the fact that we have these offsetting currents holding it in place? I think it's more the latter than the former. It looks like a relatively sort of routine digestion and pullback for now. But I don't think the margin of error is that wide anymore. Right. So I think if you go down another couple percent in the S&P 500, let's say one of the big tech stocks reports earnings and it's enough to get the the mega cap Nasdaq stocks to have a big sharp pullback. Maybe that uh, sort of brings out more actual sellers as opposed to dip buyers this one time.
3: Mike, how much of the short dated Options And now you have this yeah. volatility short dated option that's being introduced. How much of that is clouding a true picture of what the pulse of the market really is? I
7: don't think anyone knows the true answer to that question. But where I usually come around is in the absence of everything else, in the absence of other big influences where real money is either adding risk or taking off risk or has some urgency behind it, then intraday, I do think you have this game of ping pong that goes on because you have one day options that are very heavily traded. And by the end of the day, uh, you you just wanna bet on mean reversion, right? Because those options are losing value as you get throughout the day. So my understanding is it is, retail loves the one day option lottery tickets, but they on balance lose money. Mm -hmm. Why? Because people selling the options are the ones that essentially are just harvesting uh, that gain. So I don't think that's the full story, but I think it's a contributor as we get into these lull periods when it doesn't seem like there's a real macro driver that has, uh, you know, has, has sway.
2: Thank you very much, Mike. Good. As Good. the Dow is only just marginally positive. Up next, the committee is getting ready to grade your trade. So send an email to ask halftime at cnbc.com or tweet us. We'll be right back with those. my trade first for Joe. Larry purchased OKTA at 78 bucks. How would you grade that trade?
3: Uh, Let's go with the B. Security software, I own CrowdStrike. March 1st, beaten race. Okay, that lifted Okta. I want to make sure we put a stop in here below the low on that day, which was $70. This is a turnaround story. They have to get the free cash flow margins greater than 20%. They're not there just yet. Make sure you got a stop in, manage the downside, Turnaround story, I like CrowdStrike better.
2: Fair. Next for Weiss, Ken bought 500 shares of Bank of America at 34 bucks. So, should you buy more, average down, sell, what do you do?
4: I'd buy more. Uh, look, the stock's very cheap. Uh, there's not no any known catalyst at this point, but right now you're trading discount to book. JP Morgan, which should have a premium, is trading about 1.4 times book. city's trading about half times book, but they've got a lot to prove. So I think the stock's actually fairly inexpensive here. And, of course, it came down because of SVB and the others. Mm-hmm. So I'd just be patient with one, with this right now.
2: And buy more. Okay, and yep. for Bren, Leslie holds Abvi at an average of $141.73. So should she sell or hold this one?
5: A-plus for you. Buy low, sell high. So I own Abvi also. 164 is resistance for this name. So if you're shorter term, in, shorter term in nature, you could take profits here. What I'm gonna do, because earnings come out in three days, I'm gonna look to buy some like three month out of the money calls mm-hmm. so I can like hedge my upside. So that's, your, that's my, my two decisions, either take profits or sell some upside calls. And
2: I'd be trading above $164 a share. Final trades up next. Welcome back to halftime. Time for final trades already. Brand, you're up first.
5: Yeah, JEPQ. Um, it sells it buys the Nasdaq 100 sells out of the money calls. It's a defensive way to play tech. Has around a 13% distribution yield, paid annual annualized paid monthly. JOTI.
3: Tractor Supply price target raised from 250 to 270 at Telsey today. They report earnings later in the week. It's owned in the JOT ETF. This is a company with
4: strong fundamental and technical momentum.
2: And they saw baby chicks, Weiss.
4: <laughs> yeah, Farmer Jim is smiling somewhere, Joe. <laughs> He's going to call you after the show. Uh, I bought some more United Healthcare. Uh, I think that it's now uh, going to be moving up higher. There's one caveat: Umano reports on Wednesday morning. Mm. If they have a rough quarter, which I don't expect, UNH had a great quarter, we could see something different.
2: We will watch them all. That does it for halftime today. The exchange starts right now.
5: completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Halftime Report disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash report disclaimer.
0: Serious allergic reactions may occur. Trimphia may increase your risk of infections and lower your ability to fight them. Before treatment, your doctor should check you for infections and tuberculosis.